Hello there. Thank you for joining us today for this session talking about the issue of artificial intelligence and its impact on human rights. My name is Ian Martin. I'm the Europe news editor for Forbes. I have a roving beat writing about startups, policy, and investors in Europe, and that increasingly touches on artificial intelligence. This is technology that is already impacting all, impacting all our lives, and its new applications has huge potential and potentially even larger impact. So joined today by Michael Flaherty. He's the current director of the European Fund Fundamental Rights Agency, who joined the organization after a distinguished career in law and also human rights around the world. Obviously, we're at a tipping point in terms of the application of this technology, and we've seen already huge strides in the development of AI technology in the last few months alone in terms of generative AI and its potential to impact creative arts. But I think our focus will be more on the corporate world and also the role of governments and regulators in terms of enshrining and protecting fundamental human rights. So Michael, is this technology already impacting our lives without people being aware of it? Uh, yes, it is. Um, well, everybody here at the Web Summit knows about the um, ubiquity of algorithms. They touch on every aspect of human uh, well-being for great good. It, we should frame this always in a positive sense, but also with any amount of risks. Uh, we use the language of human rights, and so algorithms impact your freedom of expression, your uh, freedom of assembly, your freedom of movement, your privacy, but also uh, issues of socioeconomic well-being, uh, issues of social welfare, right to a job, healthcare, education, you name it. And it's increasingly evident that governments are using algorithms, um, again, across every dimension of their work, but largely in a, in a decentralized way. Uh, in very few countries do you have a central registry or a central pace of awareness of the extent to which algorithms are being applied across the different elements of governance. By the way, not just central government, but also local government. And uh, we're concerned that uh, citizens are simply not aware yet of the extent to which decisions that impact their well-being are being made, at least in the first instance, by a machine. Um, we have many indications of a low level of awareness, not least uh, the lack of complaints. Uh, uh, there's a, there's a, and so we need, to, we, we, we need to take on the UN recommendation of doing an audit uh, of the use of algorithms by the state and then generating the necessary public discussion. Uh, on that basis, I think we can go forward in a more confident, rights-respectful way. Very good. So what do you think is the role of the EU or governments in terms of trying to avoid either conscious biases in the design of algorithms or unconscious ones in terms of mistakes made in the construction or in terms of there's being a selection bias in the data that's being used to train these models? Yeah. Well, uh, as I said earlier, every imaginable human right is engaged by AI. Um, for good, as I said, but also in this area of risk and human rights violation. And that triggers a duty on the part of the state, because uh, all of our states have signed up to human rights commitments in international treaties. Here in Europe, the best known is the European Convention on Human Rights. That requires the state to protect your human rights. And so if algorithms are an artificial intelligence more generally is impacting your rights, then the state has no choice. It has to regulate. So it's not a question of regulation or no regulation, uh, a rights-based society, a rule of law society must regulate. The issue is getting the regulation right. Now, we're, we're in the laboratory here in Europe right now. We have the draft AI regulation. 
We have a, an AI treaty being developed by another body, the Council of Europe, uh, which has just begun work on a new treaty. Uh, and we're, we're having to negotiate the issues of what the regulation should look like. It's clear you can't and you shouldn't regulate every aspect of AI. Much of it is benign. You know, what Netflix tells me to watch tomorrow night, that doesn't need a heavy-handed state intervention. Uh, and that's why I very much welcome the risk pyramid model that's been adopted in Europe, whereby some applications are, are left for self-regulation, they're more or less left alone by the state, by authorities, but then as you rise up the pyramid, you have a greater level of external scrutiny. I find that a welcome uh, element of regulation. One thing I'll say uh, is that no matter what model of regulation we come up with, we have to ensure transparency. Uh, we have to get past the stage we're still in of people suggesting it's too complicated to explain. We don't understand it ourselves, uh, things of this nature. That's, um, that's, that's an impediment at the moment which, which we need to tackle uh, because you cannot have regulation without having some form of operable transparency that allows the overseer to do the job. Now I understand you have some forthcoming research into uh, bias and speech detection in terms of trying to discern and identify and block hate speech. As part of that research, I understand you've lifted the lids and reviewed some of these algorithms. Tell me about some of your findings at the preliminary yeah. stage. Yeah, what we wanted to do was get past the rhetoric and look in real, live, applied reality at what the impact of AI is. Uh, there's an awful lot of generalized statement about the risks and the opportunities, but we have to get past that if we're to meaningfully regulate it. And so we, we dug into these areas that you've just mentioned, uh, take a speech recognition technology. We put it to use in the context of identifying hate speech online. And what we found was that it is thoroughly unreliable uh, to a degree that even surprised us. So, I hate Jews, will get flagged as hate speech. The machine is working in that context. But, if I, if, but we found that when you enter the words, I hate Jews love, it wasn't flagged. The word love somehow made it all benign. Uh, and we many more examples of this kind showing that uh, the human cannot let go here. Humans have to stay very closely involved in monitoring the application of these technologies in the different uses. Because remember, we used it in a very specific context of flagging hate speech. We looked at predictive technologies in the particular context of policing. And again here, we found a degree of mistake which uh, is, should be a cause of great worry to police forces who are using this tech everywhere. Uh, we found that the feedback loops were generating massively mistaken uh, information for the police services to go to literally the wrong bits of the city uh, uh, because of the extent to which the bias uh, got ever stronger in the technology. Uh, and again here, the reminder is, uh, in any police force anywhere using this technology, at least now the humans have to be embedded at the very heart uh, of an ongoing review. Uh, again, it comes back to the issue with regard to every application from a human rights point of view, test, 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 and always test in the context of the application, which can vary enormously in, a, in an application of, of, general, of a general nature. Often these algorithms or machine learning tools are referred to as a black box. You've obviously started to unpick and try to discern like what are some of the characteristics or what are some of the assumptions there. Do you think governments and agencies are well equipped to make those choices and to sort of be able to get under the sort of the curtain of these algorithms? We have no choice. We have to get under the curtain. We've got to lift the lid. Uh, how can we protect our societies if we don't do that? And 
we've, we spent a bit, quite a bit of our time demythologizing the area. Uh, and uh, you, can, you can challenge a lot of the claims that the box must stay black, the lid must stay fixed, um, uh, through, through research of the type my agency does. Uh, we go into a specific sector, we work with, with the industry, we work with regulators, um, we, 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 we've even designed malign algorithms to see what would happen to them in a specific context. Uh, and we, 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 it's not incomprehensible. Remember, AI is, is, is made by humans for human purposes. Uh, so, so then we really have to, we have to face the fact that it needs to be brought under control, it needs to be tamed so that we can realize its astonishing potential uh, for human well-being. Is there a risk that for some people within the EU that they've experienced bias by governments or government agencies they maybe have a perception that they would be treated more fairly by uh, a machine-driven process, yeah, yeah. but maybe not fully aware that there are also assumptions and potentially biases within those models. That's right. Um, a few years back, we asked uh, Europeans through a large-scale survey, would they rather a facial recognition app to uh, determine their, their status in an airport or a human, uh, an individual police uh, person. Uh, and 90% said we trust the machine more than the human. Uh, and uh, we, we've, we've, we've learned in the last few years this is completely misplaced. Uh, the scale of the mistakes, as I've indicated to you now, uh, to a large extent unacknowledged mistakes, is, is, is really quite worrying. And it's not, that's not a message of you know, abolish things, it's not a message of stop investing in the technology, stop investing in learning, not at all, but a recognition that we still have a long way to go. And we need to have, um, we need to invest far more in uh, AI education. Uh, we, need to, we need to have this in our schools from, from infant school right up, uh, uh, so that we become critical and um, aware uh, of the extent to which we're in a risky environment whenever we're engaging with uh, an application, whatever it might be. Very good. The European Union, I think, has been at the forefront of regulating technology and the internet in terms of laying down like fundamental requirements around privacy with GDPR and also competition with the new Digital Services Act. How do we in Europe balance the need for innovation and for our technology companies to compete with companies in the US where there's fewer constraints around working with data or potentially in some countries like China where it seems there's almost no constraints, yep. no ethical boundaries. How do we balance protecting human rights and yep. also allowing innovation? Yeah, I would never describe it as a balance. It's not about a zero-sum game, uh, uh, more human rights, less innovative technology. To the contrary, more human rights means more trustworthy technology. More trustworthy technology is more attractive technology. I think playing the long game, it'll be the more successful technology. Uh, even if that weren't the case, we have no choice. Uh, Europe is a rule of law society. Uh, it has a duty to protect its people, um, in, online as much as offline. And so we have to regulate. Uh, but we also have to dispel myths like the one I've just mentioned. We have to dispel the myth that invoking human rights is invariably just this awful impediment, this big wall blocking us from going forward. We saw that with GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, it seems to me that when an outfit, an organization, or a government agency doesn't want to tell you something, it just says, can't do it, GDPR. And in so many of those cases, that's based on a willful or an accidental misreading of uh, the GDPR. Researchers will tell you that they can't do medical research because of GDPR. It's not true. There's an exception. 
uh, for, for, for academic research in the GDPR. And it's the same with regard to human rights and the embedding of human rights in the forthcoming AI regulation. It simply is not the roadblock. Human rights is a nuanced system. Uh, it's, it, it's subject to limitation for all sorts of reasons in the public good. Just if I can take a, a real world example, uh, we all, we were all subject to limitation during the context, in the context of COVID to contain the pandemic. Now people can agree or disagree with the level of restraint, but that was about the limitation of human rights in the interest of a public good. So we can have the limitation of human rights in the interest of public good, also in the context of the application of artificial intelligence. So let's, let, let, let's avo avoid the sort of the, the headline engagement with this topic and, 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 and look, at the, look at human rights as the more sophisticated tool that it is. Obviously this is a new technology, it's still being applied, but just make sure the benefit of the audience, can you maybe sort of like expand on like kind of the kind of harms that we've already seen within Europe in the use of this technology. You've mentioned predictive policing and that lead into mistakes and misallocations. What other impacts have we seen already? Yeah, we, um, well, let's start with the positive impacts. Um, we wouldn't have a COVID vaccine if it weren't for uh, uh, artificial intelligence. Um, I, I look forward, to, if we get this right, I look forward to an astonishing future uh, with, with, with cures for diseases that are beyond our dreams right now. Uh, I, I look at a delivery of public services to a degree of efficiency, uh, which simply isn't the case uh, uh, today. Um, so we need, to, we, we, we need to recognize that if we channel this in the right direction, uh, it's astonishing. But then the risks, the risks are, are manifold. Um, last year in the Netherlands, a, um, a biased algorithm resulted in the clawback of social welfare payments uh, from people uh, who happened to belong to racial minority groups. It was an outrageous demonstration of a biased algorithm, uh, uncontrolled, it was by no means deliberate, but nevertheless, uh, there had been a failure to identify the impact of the feedback loops and the manner in which this application was getting more and more racist as time went on uh, until it was too late and a, a government fell as a result of this. So the, um, the, 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 the dimensions of risk are vast, uh, and uh, that's why we must adopt a four-square human rights approach, not just a privacy approach. In a lot of the conversations about AI, uh, digital services, and so on, you, you, you get a high attention to the need to protect privacy. But privacy is just one of dozens of, 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 of human rights issues that are engaged here. They all need to be captured. That, by the way, reminds us that the oversight bodies need to be well-skilled and resourced across all these issues. They need to know what social welfare discrimination looks like as much as what a data breach might look like. Is there a risk that the organizations that are using this technology don't fully understand the consequences or the assumptions that yeah. are already at play? Yeah. In recent research of ours, we worked with people in industry and uh, we found an awful lot of goodwill but, uh, and, and a generalized commitment to be good. <laughs> um, but when we unpacked that and we dug deep into it, when we explored what that meant and what level of awareness of human rights there was, it was very low indeed. Uh, so there was a general sense of privacy, I would say an exaggerated sense of privacy, as something absolute that you can never limit, uh, and a very low understanding of discrimination. Uh, one of the issues, for instance, was um, there was a recognition that you you make sure to avoid in your algorithms obvious discriminatory elements, such as, um, as, 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 as identifying race as a, as, a, as a selection criterion or gender as a selection criterion, but an unawareness of proxies. So take, for example, a shoe size. Shoe size can be a proxy to distinguish men and women. 
But when, when people in certain bits of industry were confronted with this, they were, they were honest enough to admit that it hadn't occurred to them. And so we really do need to build up a level of awareness. Uh, um, everybody, that, people don't all have to become human rights lawyers. But at a minimum, they need to engage the relevant expertise to get it right. And, and use agencies like mine, which is generating the evidence on this all the time. Can we learn from how other industries are regulated or governed in terms of making sure assumptions are checked and safeguarded? Yes, of course. I mean, regulation is not a, is, is, is not a, um, a new science. Uh, uh, I've already mentioned different models that we have to play with here. There has to be a dimension of self-regulation. That, that goes without saying. It's not just an issue of different grades of seriousness of the uh, impact of the technology, but it's also the sheer scale. I mean, how could you create a regulatory body capable of, of engaging with every AI application on Earth? It's, it's, it's unthinkable. So we have to borrow elements of self-regulation, including from other sectors. And we've learned a lot in Europe in the area of digital services uh, through the, the, the voluntary codes of conduct model that's been applied. Um, but then we have to get into hard regulation. And there we can look, for example, at what has worked and maybe not worked so well with GDPR, the data protection regulation. And then, of course, there will have to, there have to be new elements uh, to take account of the specificities uh, of this technology, one of which is the extent to which the human rights impact, the risk, is very context-specific. Uh, that's a dimension we have to keep in mind with, ge with, with general application AI technologies. And I, I'm not sure that the drafters of the regulatory framework right now have fully come to grips with that yet. But that's, that's, that's the next important uh, issue to tackle. Obviously, Europe is a hotbed of AI research, but I think the largest applications are being made by large technology companies in the United States or in China. Is there an issue here in terms of regulating or safeguarding rights when this data, these models, are being run outside the borders of the European Union? Yeah. The, um, it has been the experience in the past that, as I said earlier, Europe has been the laboratory, and where Europe goes, other parts of the world tend to follow. Uh, and so, for example, just to take one example, the uh, data protection uh, machinery of Australia is, I understand, largely modeled uh, on the European. Uh, and I think we'll see similar practices in this context. Um, the, I can't say. I'm not, I, I, I'm, I, I don't have a, 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 a predictive capacity to know how countries outside the EU will react. But I think that what will happen is that as we, as we put in place these elements of regulation, and as they are seen to generate levels of trust in the technology, they'll become highly attractive uh, to, to states elsewhere in the world. For sure, not all, uh, but to, at a minimum to democratic states. Why do you think there's been this overemphasis, both from regulators and also from companies in focusing on privacy issues? Yeah, it's because of data. Um, everything is built on data, uh, and um, it, 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 so there's a, a, there's a very correct acknowledgement that if we share our data, uh, there are all manner of privacy issues that have got to be taken account of. And that's fine. I'm not disputing that. Uh, but it, the, data go, the data is used for all manner of purposes. And then these trigger all these other impacts on our lives. Um, I, I've already given so many examples. But um, look at how data gathered by facial recognition technology uh, by the police uh, impacts how I behave in the streets. Uh, I will maybe avoid this street or that street because I don't want to be recorded. That's my freedom of movement. I'll choose with care with whom I associate. That's my freedom of association. Um, I, um, 
uh, and, and I could go on with this example ad infinitum, um, and that's just one narrow band of human rights. Uh, think about the social welfare issue I mentioned earlier, and um, so, so the, 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 we really need to get a much wider appreciation. Interesting. What do you see as the sort of greatest risks in the application of this technology? The greatest risks in the application? Yeah. Um, the greatest risk is uh, that the people who say that it's a black box uh, and that we should just let it run at its own astonishing speed, that they'll win, that they'll win the argument. That's extremely frightening. Uh, we've, got to, we've, we, we, we've got to stay up with the discussion. We've got to insist on transparency. Now, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm aware that there are all manner of challenges about applying transparency in practice. Um, but you cannot regulate without knowing what's going on. The whole world doesn't have to know, uh, but the overseer, the regulator, needs to know. Uh, and uh, what we need there is an intensified conversation between the scientists uh, and the regulators to figure out what transparency would look like in practice. What's the minimum acceptable level of disclosure uh, uh, to, to do the effective regulation? That's the big challenge going forward. That's the issue that would keep me awake at night about a future of AI. This, this phrase keeps coming up, sort of the black box of AI. Well, like, what, what do researchers mean by that? And is it, is it really truly like that opaque? Or do we need to ensure that there is always some transparency? Yeah, well, as I said, uh, we, have, we have no choice. We have no choice. Um, would, you, would you put your life and the life of your children in the hands of a technology that you don't understand, uh, uh, the direction of which you can't predict? That's a, that's a dystopian future. And I don't, we don't have to go there. And what opportunities do you see in terms of this technology being able to sort of enshrine, enshrine and protect human rights? I think one application which obviously we discussed a lot already is privacy, but sort of in terms of potential for machine learning to obfuscate privacy and like sort of ensure that yeah. it's not being harvested and harvested and tracked. Sure. Look, there's a, an enormous scope, still largely undeveloped, uh, to put AI in the service of human rights. Uh, human rights organizations around the world are using AI right now to monitor the situation, including remote monitoring of human rights abuses to a degree that was unthinkable 20 years ago. That's very important. We've seen some use of these applications in the context of Ukraine. Uh, they, 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 this is very important. It's very valuable. Um, I could give you so many different examples. Um, look, look at the capacity of AI to transform healthcare uh, for the good. Uh, but let me also be a bit provocative and say that um, uh, AI in policing, properly controlled, properly directed, serves us all. It serves our human right not to be killed, not to be subject to a terrorist attack. So even here, in that context, it's often described as a, a, a sort of non-human rights direction of AI. It, it, is, it can be directed ultimately in the service of human well-being, human thriving. Very good. Michael, thank you for your time. I wish the audience could give a round of applause for Michael and his insights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.